Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Thank you for joining us here on our online platform. We are journeying through the Gospel of John, and we're having a great time. We are finding that this scripture that was written thousands of years ago is incredibly relevant to us today. And we believe you will find that same thing to be true as we journey into our passage for this morning. But before we get to that, I I want you to entertain this question. And it, it, it may sound like a really odd question. It may sound like a very strange question. And I think if I'm honest, it may feel like a very sacrilegious question. But I, I want to reassure you, before I ask this question or ask you to entertain this question, I want to reassure you that this is a question, or very much in the same line as a question, that we're going to see Jesus ask his disciples in our passage this morning. Here's the question. Should you stop following Jesus? Ask yourself, should I stop following Jesus. Now I know you're thinking, is this a trap? Like, if I whisper my answer in my living room, is the pastor going to find out? (laughs) You know, many times in life, we get disappointed. We get frustrated. Or we don't like how God has kind of unfolded his plan in our life. If we were going to write the story of our life, we'd write it a lot different than God is writing We wouldn't allow the things that God has allowed in our life. There's going to be many times that we are disappointed with God's plan, frustrated with what he's allowed, and we'll have to kind of ask that question to ourselves: Is this disappointment going to overtake my belief? You see, as a pastor, I hope you answer that question with a no. No, I shouldn't stop following Jesus. No, I I shouldn't do that. No, I I should continue to follow Jesus. That's how I want you to answer that question. But I do think it's a very healthy question for you to ask. Why? Because I think it's important for us to test the strength of our commitment. I think it's important for us to ask ourselves, is my faith strong enough to deal with this frustration, to deal with feeling let down by what God has allowed in my life? Can your belief survive disappointment? Is it strong enough? That's why I think that question or a form of that question is very important for us to ask ourselves. I remember when my wife was pregnant with our daughter, Alexine. It was really, really exciting. You see, but right before that, we had just had a miscarriage. We had lost our first child. And I remember the whole nine months that my wife was pregnant with Allie, with our little Alexine, I remember that question kind of came over me. And in the back of my mind, and sometimes when, right before I would go to bed and my mind was just distracted and my spirit was maybe a little depressed, I'd kind of ask that question, you know, what happens if we lose this one? What happens if we lose her life? Can my faith endure that? If we lose this one, am I still going to want to follow Jesus? Can my belief survive that type of disappointment? And that was a hard question to ask. But I think it was a good question to ask. And here's what we're going to find in our passage this morning. Is Jesus is going to disappoint. He's going to disappoint his disciples. And so Jesus will ask a question, very much like the question I asked you. Do you want to stop following? Is this disappointment too much? Has it overtaken you? Do you want to leave? And most will leave Jesus in our passage today. Some will stay. But I think the main idea that Jesus wants to teach us as he asks that question, I think of all of us, not just of his first century disciples, but of his 21st century disciples, of his 21st century followers. I think the main idea that Jesus wants to teach us, and this is the big idea for our message this morning. So if you're only going to write down one thing, I want you to make sure that you write this down. We always have one big idea for our passage every morning or every Sunday morning. The big idea is this, and I think this is the main idea of Jesus' teaching here. 
The big idea is belief must outweigh disappointment. Belief must outweigh disappointment. Disappointment's going to come. It's going to happen. Jesus is not going to always give us what we want, the way we want it, when we want it. There's going to be times where we're frustrated with what he's allowed in our life. Now, Jesus is always going to be true to his promises. Jesus is always going to grant eternal life to those who believe. Those things will always remain true. Christ will give us the gift of eternity. But he is not always going to make this earthly life easy. And so we need to ask ourselves, when that disappointment comes, when our earthly comforts leave, is our faith strong enough to stay the course? Let me show you how Jesus is going to disappoint his disciples and how he's going to ask that very thought-provoking question, do you want to leave? Do you want to go? Is it time for you to stop following? Has your disappointment overtaken your belief? Is it time for you to go? And I really want you to ask yourselves this question as we examine through this passage. Keep that in the back of your mind. Ask yourself about the strength and the integrity of your belief as we journey through this passage together. Let's start. John chapter 6. We're going to start with verse 60. Verse 60. It says, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, first off, who is this group described here in verse 60? When many of his disciples... Now, most of the time when the term disciple is used, especially in this gospel, it's speaking about Jesus' closest followers. It's it's speaking about the 12 disciples. But there are sometimes very small occasions in which disciple is a much broader term, a much wider group, a group that includes thousands of people. And I think that's what's happening here. And I think we'll see that as we journey through the passage, that it's not just talking about the 12. In fact, they're addressed later in our passage. Jesus here is clearly speaking to a very broad group. He's speaking to a group that has followed him to this place right now. This large group, he fed the 5,000, a miracle we've been talking about for several weeks now, a very dominant miracle in John's gospel. Jesus feeds 5,000 men, which is probably 20,000 people. He does it all with a kid's sack lunch. And this group doesn't just feed at that one moment, but then they follow. They follow Jesus. Now, we're not told if all of them do, but it seems like as the passage kind of moves along and John describes what's going on after that event, it seems like a large group of people are still coming. This is who Jesus is talking to. So this audience is coming to Jesus. Now, we don't know all of their motives. We don't know if they're following Jesus for good reasons. We just know that they're following Jesus. So at this point, it's hard to tell if the whole group has kind of one motive to follow Jesus. Some may be very genuine in their following, and some may be following for the wrong reasons. But this large group hears what Jesus says, and they don't like it. Look at their response. Go back to verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, this is all the teaching that Jesus has given so far that we've covered over the last couple of weeks. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, at first glance, we might be saying, well, it just sounds like they're confused. Right? This is a, this is a hard saying. Maybe you're thinking like uh, when you encounter a math problem and you say, man, this is a hard problem. What you're saying to yourself is, I'm confused, I don't understand, right? Is that what's being said here? Are they just saying, teacher, I'm confused, I have a question. I didn't understand this whole teaching that you gave previously. I didn't understand when you said, eat my flesh, drink my blood. What do you mean that you're going to give of your flesh? What do you mean that you're giving of your flesh for the life of the world? What is this? It sounds like a sacrifice. This, this sounds like you're talking about you sacrificing yourself for us. What do you mean by the gift of eternal life? You see, that's not the way we should understand this passage here or this sentence here. They're not saying it's hard, meaning it's, it's confusing, that the problem is that they're misunderstanding Jesus. No, that's not the problem. 
The problem is what they do understand what Jesus is saying. This term hard, we could also translate as harsh or offensive. The problem is not that Jesus is confusing. The problem is he is challenging them. Uh, Two clues to that is right after what happens. The first one is, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? That term listen right here in the Greek is not just make sure you hear it audibly, like their ears are working. The idea is to accept, to acknowledge, to agree with, to take in. What they're saying is, Jesus, we find your message intolerable. Right? It's offensive to us. It's harsh. It's challenging. We're repulsed by it. Not, we're confused, please clarify. No, it's clear we don't like it. We cannot receive it. We cannot take it in. Right? The second clue that we're thinking about this rightly, and taking this word hard to mean harsh and offensive, is right there in the next verse. Jesus' response, he knows exactly what they're talking about. Verse 61. But Jesus said, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? So what does Jesus see as their problem? Jesus doesn't see that they're confused. He doesn't see that he needs to clarify his last point. No, he's saying, oh, what I'm saying is offending you. You you don't agree with it. You're challenged by it. You cannot stomach it. It's not something that you want. You're disappointed with what I'm saying. I'm not meeting your expectations. I'm not saying what you want. Okay, well, well, what do they want? Why, Why are they finding Jesus so disappointing? Why do they find his message so harsh, so offensive, so hard to accept? Why are they challenged by it? Why do they want to push it away? Why is it intolerable? Why is it hard to stomach? What is Jesus teaching them that they don't like? Well, first, let's go back and see what are they expecting? What do they want from Jesus? If we just journey back in chapter 6, we could see in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 6 what they were looking for in Jesus. Look at verse 14 with me in John chapter 6. It says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, this is the great miracle of feeding the 5,000 men or the 20,000 people, they said, This indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. They're acknowledging Jesus is the leader we've been waiting for. Verse 15, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him to make him king, or sorry, take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. What did they want? They wanted a political savior. They wanted someone to come in and to, to free them and liberate them from their Roman oppressor. They were looking for a king. They were looking for a conqueror to come in to solve their earthly problem. That's who they're looking for. They're looking for a political savior. But what else are they looking for? Look at verse 26. This is Jesus speaking here of John chapter 6. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. What is Jesus saying there? Jesus is saying, you didn't see this miracle As a sign, a sign meaning it was pointing to something. You didn't see what was significant behind the miracle. And what's significant behind the miracle is me. It's my power. It's a testament to how I am God. But you didn't see that. You just wanted to be fed. You didn't come to bow down and worship me. You came because I filled your bellies. Right? I like to summarize their expectation like this. They're looking for a Burger King. They're looking for a Burger King. Right? A place where they can kind of drive up, place their order, get it their way, right away at Burger King now. Right? That used to be the old slogan. That's what they want. They want someone to meet their physical needs. They want an earthly king to meet their earthly needs. Well, what is Jesus giving them? 
right? If that's their expectation, they want this kind of Burger King, right, to, to kind of give them what they want. They want to force this king almost into their servitude to, to meet their political ideals. And they would love for him to continue to feed their bellies. If they're all wrapped up in kind of this politics and earthly kind of needs, what is Jesus saying that's giving them the clue that he doesn't want anything to do with that? Well, I think the first clue is, right, in verse 15, he just ran away from them. But we saw last week that Jesus spoke to them and said, I don't want to be that kind of king to you. Jesus didn't speak about a coronation. He didn't speak about being crowned. We saw last week Jesus spoke about being crucified, about giving up his flesh as a sacrifice. He asked them to believe in him, to receive him, to take his flesh, to drink his blood. And what he meant by that was to receive his sacrifice. Jesus wanted to be an eternal king that solved their eternal problem. He wanted to free them from their sin and give them eternal salvation. And these disciples couldn't stomach that. They didn't like that. They didn't match up with their agenda. They were disappointed. They're not looking for a crucified king. They're looking for a conquering king. And they're disappointed with what Jesus is putting forth. And Jesus sees this. Right? He calls them on it. Look at verse 61. Knowing this in himself, that the disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense in this? Does this bother you? Have I disappointed you? Now look at this next statement. It's a little confusing how this fits into what Jesus is saying. But here, let me give you a preview of how I think Jesus is kind of fitting this in. I think Jesus is going to continue that chord of, you think that's disappointing, right? You think of me talking about my crucifixion, the giving of my flesh, the sacrifice of myself for your salvation. If you think that idea is offensive, just wait till you see this. Okay, look at this statement. Verse 62. It says, Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before. Now the reason this is hard to understand what Jesus is saying is because really it's missing something. Right? If you look down at your passage, the third word there in that verse, then what if? When you see that word if, especially in English, we think of it as kind of two parts. We think of an if and then a then. It's called a conditional clause. We think of if then. If you take out the dishes, then I'll give you your allowance. There's this kind of cause and effect, this if, then, if, then. Imagine if your parents said, if you take out the trash, and then nothing else. You would notice, you would kind of sit there being looking, at, looking at them and say, well, then what? Right? And that's kind of what Jesus does to us here. He leaves it kind of hanging. So we don't really know what the then is. Well, there's two real possibilities here. Okay, and I'll tell you which one I think fits best with the context. The first possibility is this. Jesus could be saying, and let's read the verse, and I'll insert the then. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending, the Son of Man being the title that Jesus gives himself, it's his favorite term for himself. Then what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Then you would believe. That's a possibility. Maybe Jesus is saying, I know this is a hard saying, this idea of accepting my sacrifice, this idea of me not meeting your expectation to be your Burger King, right? To deliver what you want whenever you want it, to be at your service to fulfill your political agenda, right? To free you from all your physical and earthly problems. But if you see me ascend back into heaven, then you'll believe, and it won't be hard for you to accept anymore. That's a possibility. There's a second possibility, and this is the one I think that fits better with the passage. Jesus could be saying this. Let's read the verse again. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Then you would be really offended. 
You see how they kind of, those, those kind of go in different directions there? I think the second one is actually what Jesus is pointing at. Now, why is that? I think it fits the tone of the passage. The tone of the passage is critique of their unbelief. It's critique that Jesus is speaking of his sacrifice for the salvation of their souls, and they're still persisting in unbelief. They're still pushing that idea away, and they're still holding on and grasping on to this expectation that Jesus will be their political savior. He will free them from all this earthly mess. Jesus is critiquing that. That's the tone of the passage. And so I think what Jesus is saying here is Jesus is saying, when I ascend, when the Son of Man ascends, that's when you're really going to be offended. That's when you're really going to find it offensive. Now, how can the ascension be offensive? Wouldn't that be a confirmation of what Jesus is doing? Wouldn't that be a confirmation that he is God? You see, what happens in the Gospels many times is when, when one part of Jesus' work is mentioned, really it, 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 it's talking about the whole part. So if it speaks of the resurrection of Jesus, it's also speaking of the death of Jesus. If you think of the kind of cross work of Jesus Christ, it's really the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension, right? Those are, that's the work, kind of the culminating work of Jesus Christ's ministry. And oftentimes what the gospel will do is it'll pick one part that stands for the whole. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, I'm going to pick the very end, the ascension, me going back to my Father. But what is the way back to the Father? It's the cross. So Jesus is saying, my way back to the Father, my way of the cross, the crucifixion, my burial, resurrection, and ascension. If you're offended by my sayings about how you must accept my sacrifice, just wait till you see me die. Just wait till you see me crucified. That's when you'll be really offended. If you find it hard to stomach right now your disappointment, just wait till you watch me bleed. Then you'll be really disappointed. I think this fits with what Paul, the Apostle Paul, would say later, one of the closest followers of Jesus Christ in the first century world who became a primary church planner. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the cross, Christ crucified, is a stumbling block to people. It's, it's seen as foolishness. Right? That God would die is seen as foolishness and a stumbling block, a, a lack of power. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, you think you're disappointed now? Just wait till Good Friday. You're going to be really disappointed. Well, how can this disappointment ever be overcome? If this is so deep-seated in the disciples, so deep-seated their expectation that Jesus would be their burger king, giving them all earthly reprieve from problems, meet all their earthly needs, clean up all their earthly mess, give them political victory, Right, If they're disappointed that Jesus is not there to fulfill that agenda, how can they ever lift themselves out of that disappointment? What Jesus says next is this. The only way to be moved out of that disappointment is by the very act of God. God must move you out of that disappointment. All right, look at what Jesus says, verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus has done this before, kind of a contrast between spirit and flesh. He's done this before. He did it in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. He told Nicodemus, in order to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You must be born from above. You must be born of the spirit, not born of the flesh. What, is, what, is, what was Jesus saying in chapter 3? What is he saying in chapter 6? He says, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, has to do a work in your heart for you to be alive, for you to let go of these expectations, to move out of disappointment, and to see that Jesus may not meet your expectation, but he exceeds those expectations. Right? To see that he eclipses those expectations. That he moves past kind of earthly needs and he gives you eternal things. It says it's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who can give life to you. Now over the last couple weeks what we've seen is that the Father is the one who moves on us to bring us to belief. 
But here Jesus is opening it up even more. Opening up the activity of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now he includes right here the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to move on you in order to be moved out of your unbelief. In order for you to move out of the disappointment of not getting what you want from Jesus. But Jesus brings back in also the work of the Father. Look at verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who were or those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. 65. And he said to them, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. See, now he speaks again of God's movement. God moves us out of unbelief. God moves in our hearts so we may believe. It says, in order for us to come to Jesus, it must be granted to us by the Father. This is very similar to what Jesus said in verse 64, that no one can come to the to Christ unless the Father who sent me draws him. So here we see God graciously, right? That's the idea of God grants it. God gives it as a gift. He, as a gift, graciously draws us to the Son. And, and what happens when the Spirit draws? Does that mean that all of our disappointment goes away? Does that mean that all of our expectations go away? Does that mean we don't feel frustrated with not getting all of our earthly problems solved? Does that mean all that kind of angst about being in hardship and suffering and pain and sorrow, does that mean it all goes away? No, I don't think it means that. I just think it means it's exceeded. It's eclipsed. That we we can finally lift our eyes beyond the earthly mess and gaze into eternity and see that God has given us eternal life in Jesus Christ in order to move us out of this disappointment. God must grant in our hearts Belief. The Father moves, the Spirit moves, and brings us to the Son. And when we see the Son, we see it is easy to abandon our expectations because He has given us eternity. Wow. But some still remain in unbelief. And this is where kind of a great divide happens with these disciples. The big idea was belief must outweigh disappointment. Well, this is where we find their belief was not true belief. Why? Because their belief cannot outweigh their disappointment. They're just too disappointed. And they're going to decide to stop following Jesus. They've had enough. Jesus, we know what we want, we know our expectations. And you don't meet them. And what you offer is not something that we want. So we're not following anymore. All right, look at verse 66. And after this, many, not some, not few, says after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. What a sad verse. Many left. Honestly, how John paints the picture here, I would not be surprised if the only ones who stayed were the 12. That this group, honestly, could have been in the thousands. And thousands left him. Why? Because they were disappointed. He just didn't give them what they wanted, the way they wanted, when they wanted it, even though it was exactly what they needed. They were just too disappointed. And then Jesus turns to his disciples, or turns to the 12, and he asks that question that I asked you to entertain in the very beginning. Imagine this. Imagine yourself in this situation right now you're really starting to see the message of Jesus start to crystallize, right? You're starting to see that Jesus isn't just this miracle worker. He isn't just a, a prophet like from the Old Testament. He isn't just somebody who, could, who can speak great words, who could predict future events, or who could perform miracles. He's more than that. He's more than just a normal teacher. 
But now you're starting to see that, 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 that he is God and he is on a mission to save humanity. That he is here to die. He is here to suffer. He is here to take on our punishment. To take on our sin for the crimes that we have committed. He wants to take on those consequences for us. And he wants us to receive his death as the only sacrifice for our sin. And you're starting to see this kind of message of Jesus crystallize in your mind. And you know at this point, it's kind of a watershed moment. I mean, things are really starting to pivot for Jesus. And so this mass of crowd of people, you're starting to hear these grumblings and people saying, wait a second, what is he talking about? What is this whole like, like bleeding What is this whole uh, uh, giving of flesh? No, 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 no. We want a king. We don't want somebody who bleeds out. We want somebody to reign. And maybe you're you're, you're closer to Jesus. You know, you're you're part of the the 12, and you you hear the murmurings, and and it it starts to grow and grow, and you, you can't contain it. You can't police it. You can't call the ushers to remove the rowdy crowd. The crowd becomes this kind of chaos, and people just start leaving And they start saying things. Maybe they start throwing things. And as Jesus almost turns to you in a, in a posture maybe of defeat, or at least a posture of disappointment, he turns to you and he asks you this question. Verse 67. Do you want to go away as well? Wow. Is it time for you to stop following me? Is it time for you to be done? Have I disappointed you as well? You know, I think if we're honest, if you've been a follower of Jesus Christ for some time, you probably had a conversation like this with Jesus. where things haven't gone your way, right? where you're frustrated, you're disappointed, you feel let down. I think if you're honest, maybe you wouldn't share it with your Christian friends, right? But if you're honest, maybe you felt betrayed by God, that you were living the obedient life, right? but life just seemed to get harder and harder. And in moments of disappointment, maybe you've had a very convicting moment where you felt like Jesus said directly to your heart, well, are you done? Can you find any reason to follow me? Or are there no more good reasons to follow me because life has gotten harder? Now, in the Greek, this question strikes us a little bit different than it does in the English. You see, because in the Greek, we're, we're given a clue as to what Jesus anticipates the answer will be. The Greek is a very detailed language, and one of the details that is very nice for kind of interpreting the intention behind a question is that in Greek, you can put uh, certain particles, certain pieces into the question that kind of tip your hand as to what you expect the answer will be. And in this question, one of those particles, one of those kind of elements, one of those grammatical elements is in this question. And it tips the hand to what Jesus is anticipating the answer will be. And Jesus is anticipating the answer is going to be no. I I, I wish kind of English translations would do a little better job at showing that. Now that's hard to do, but maybe something like, you don't want to leave, do you? Maybe that would emphasize that Jesus is anticipating they're going to say no. I I think it's very fair to believe that that's what Jesus is saying, not only for, for that grammatical construction, But you just look back in verse 64. Maybe it's in parentheses in your Bible. I know it is in mine. But halfway through verse 64, it says, For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Jesus already knew who would betray him. He knew who would follow and he knew who would not. So I think when Jesus asked this question, it's really not for himself. Jesus is not insecure at this moment. He's not thinking like, man, I'm not doing a great job here. The whole crowd is leaving. I bet you guys are leaving too. Jesus is not, you know, uh, being a needy friend here. Like, please don't leave me. He's not doing that. 
I think what Jesus is doing is he's asking a very fair question and he's asking his disciples to examine the strength of their belief. Yeah, I'm sure you're disappointed. I know this is what you were expecting. I'm not going to give you what you wanted. I'm not going to give you what you expected. But I'm going to give you greater than that. Do you want to leave? And look at the response. Jesus got exactly what he expected. Simon Peter in verse 68 What wonderful words, because I think it's honest. In the remainder of our passage, we're going to kind of have this kind of contrast between Simon Peter and Judas. Like two individuals who would respond differently probably to Jesus' challenge here. But Simon Peter is kind of a model of discipleship here, whereas Judas would be the model of apostasy, the model of betrayal. But Simon Peter here, look at this moment. You can feel the emotion. Even though he may not understand how what Jesus is going to say he's going to do is going to work out, and he may not understand perfectly what is it going to mean for Jesus to die. And we see that later as the Gospels develop. But Jesus, or sorry, Peter says these wonderful words that still express belief in the midst of disappointment. He says this, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where are we going to go, Jesus? Is that super affirming? No, I don't think so. But I think it's honest. I think it's very vulnerable. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Sure, you're not going to be our Burger King, right? You're not going to give us our way right away now. We're not going to pull up, honk the horn, get our order. You're not going to come and, and free us from our Roman oppressors. But you have the words of eternal life. And listen to this. And we have come to believe, or sorry, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is a significant statement. You are the Holy One of God. It's actually a very unique statement, especially in the New Testament. We find this exact statement only one more time in the other Gospels. And it's a very interesting place where we find this title, this confession. It's on the mouth of a demon. In the Gospel of Mark, as Jesus is interacting with a demon, a demon sees Jesus. He identifies Jesus, and he calls him the Holy One of God. He says, I know who you are. What do you want with me? You are the Holy One of God. Now, demons don't follow Jesus, but they know exactly the proper place that Jesus has in this kind of cosmic arena. They know he's king. They know he's God. They know with clarity. They may not submit to Jesus, but they know clearly who Jesus is. And Peter, with clarity, is speaking, you are the Holy One of God. This is a title in the Old Testament that's used only for God. The prophet Isaiah uses this term majority of the time that it's used in in the Old Testament. And it's speaking of God. Not a king, not a ruler, but of God. This is a very significant confession. I think it's interesting that how the confession matches what Jesus has told them that he's offering. All right, it's not a confession that matches the anticipation or the expectations of the crowd, the ones who have left. He doesn't say, oh, they just don't see Jesus. You have a different plan, but you're still going to be our political savior. No, Peter has realized we need to abandon that expectation. Which is easy to do because, Jesus, you exceed that expectation. You are God. You are the Holy One of God, the one who could grant us eternal life. Not the one who can deliver us from our oppressor who could free us from Roman tyranny, who could make our lives easier, but you are the one who could give us eternity. Look at the contrast image of that in verse 70. Jesus speaks of Judas. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he... One of the twelve was going to betray him. This kind of parallel or kind of contrast here between this confession of the innermost group of disciples, the twelve, right from Peter, but then also this betrayal of Judas. 
Belief must outweigh disappointment. We're going to be disappointed. It's going to happen. We're going to get frustrated. We're we're not going to be content all the time with the things that God allows in our life. It's true. But our belief must outweigh our disappointments. We still feel them. We still wear them, right? They still stress us out. They still cause anxiety. They still cause rifts in our family. Disappointment's there. Frustration's there. Sadness is there. Depression is there. All these real pains are a part of life. But God has given us so much more joy in Jesus Christ. He's given us eternity. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to ask the same question that Jesus asked his disciples I want to ask to you. Should you stop following Jesus? Has these last months just buried your faith? Has these last months of disappointment just destroyed your belief? Maybe now that you're Financial stability has been taken away. You have relationships that have been severed. You've lost somebody. Now that the comforts of life have been taken, the ease of life has only been replaced by difficulty. Can you find any reason to follow Jesus? Now, friend, I want to tell you, that both I and Jesus expect you to say no to that. No. No, I'm not going to stop following Jesus. No, I still have reason. I still have a grand reason to continue to follow Jesus. Right, let, let, let me encourage you. Let me encourage you in this. Let the eternal exceed the earthly. Let the eternal exceed the earthly. Yes, life gets messy. Life hurts you. Sadly, disappointment and hardship are often friends of those who follow Jesus. But lift your gaze into eternity. And and I know that's hard. And I know that's difficult. But that is exactly what Jesus is asking us to do. That's exactly what the New Testament writers asked us to do. That's exactly what the entire Bible asked us to do. To lift our gaze into eternity when we are in the valleys of this life. God will always be true to his promise. He will grant eternal life to all who believe. Let Let the eternal exceed the earthly. Yes, he may not meet your expectations, but friend, he will exceed them and hold on to what eclipses those unmet expectations. And let me encourage you with this as well. Maybe this is a prayer that you can pray this week. Maybe every morning this week, you just start your days in the morning with this very simple prayer. If you feel that your belief is not strong enough, Right, that you're questioning the stamina that you have right now to endure this time and this hardship. Ask the God who started your faith to strengthen your faith. Jesus illustrated right there for us that the, that the Holy Spirit gave us light, that the Father graciously draws us to the Son. Ask the one who started your faith to strengthen your faith. Just maybe wake up in the morning and say, Father, I, I do not rely on me to get me through the day. If I'm going to make it, I need you to hold me. I need you to help me. I need you, honestly, Father, sometimes to just carry me. To not walk beside me, but to lift me up because I can't walk anymore. Ask the one who started your faith to strengthen your faith. Now, maybe you're listening to this and you're, you want to call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. Or you're still looking in to Jesus. You're still curious about Jesus. You haven't yet crossed that line of commitment to say I'm following him, but you're looking in to that idea. I want to encourage you with that first idea I mentioned. 
let the eternal exceed the earthly. I have found many times that people get very curious about Jesus when they face some sort of earthly brokenness. Whether it be a loss of a loved one, um, a loss of a job, a divorce, and a marriage dissolving. It could be betrayal from a friend. It could be many different things, many different hardships, many different forms of brokenness. And oftentimes when we experience these kind of earthly broken moments, we, we get curious about the eternal. And, and we think about what's bigger than the mess that we're going in. But what I'm afraid of at times is that when we start to think about Jesus in the midst of these earthly kind of messes, in the midst of these, this kind of earthly brokenness, that, that, that sometimes as we explore this, we come with only earthly expectations. Meaning it's, it's the mess that, that got us thinking about Jesus. Now all we can think is that Jesus will clean the mess. And I got to tell you right up front, that's not a good expectation. That you may need to abandon that. I'm not saying that Jesus won't clean up some of the mess in your life. But I'm not promising you that he will. Some of that will remain. Maybe if you have a diagnosis, maybe it's a terminal disease, and that's got you to, to, to think about well, what happens after, right? Is my life something eternal or just temporal? When my lungs stop filling and my brain stops working and my heart stops beating, when the blood stops pumping, is that the end? Or, or do I go on? And you start to think about those kind of eternal things and then you start maybe to journey through the gospels. You you read about healings and you see these things and you think, okay, now you start to have an appetite for that earthly satisfaction, for that earthly kind of mess to be cleaned up. And then maybe you jump into spiritual things and you, you, you do commit yourself to Jesus or you at least get really close to that point. But then you realize that your prayers aren't answered and your terminal diagnosis is just getting worse. Yes, God could heal you. It's possible. I've seen God do some incredible things. But what I'm afraid of is that at times we can expect God to clean up all the mess, all of our earthly mess. And when he doesn't, we're faced with that question that he asked his disciples. And we're tempted to respond like many of them did. No, Jesus, if you don't give me what I want, then I don't want you. And I have to tell you, let the eternal exceed the earthly. It is very, maybe not easy, but it's not as difficult to abandon your earthly expectations when you see Jesus exceeds those expectations in eternity. He wishes to grant you eternal life. And that's the biggest mess. And he guarantees to clean that up. And that is every reason, and sometimes maybe the only reason, to follow. It should be our main reason. Could he grant the other things to be gone? Yes, and he may. But if he does not, I don't think we can rightly say that we're disappointed with what he gave us because eternal life is a very, very large gift. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Christ, that the gift that you give us exceeds our expectations, goes beyond what we could ever ask for. You've given us so much more Father, we know we want to be honest with you that our hearts ache sometimes. We hurt sometimes. We feel at times we are hurt by you. We find it hard to accept many times 
the plan that you have for us, the story that you're writing for us. It's not easy to accept. Father, we are at times disappointed. But we know the belief that you give us outweighs that disappointment. It lifts our gaze into eternity. It moves us off the surface of the earth and brings us into the clouds of heaven and helps us see the eternal riches that we have in Jesus Christ. Oh, what a wonderful thing. Please strengthen our faith. Give us stamina. Give us endurance. You started our faith. Please, please strengthen our faith during this season. It's been difficult. It'll continue to be difficult. And Father, for those who don't yet know you, I pray, Father, that they would come to you. They would come to you to see that Jesus Christ has done the greatest thing that could ever be done for them. They would see that Jesus Christ has died. Died for their sin. Faced death because of our sin. Taken on a penalty that was not his to bear. But he rose again, defeating death, and now extends to us the gift of forgiveness. And all you say to us is believe and turn to me. You don't ask us to reform ourselves. You ask us to believe. And you will reform us. And you will change us. Oh, Father, I pray that there are people who are listening today that decide today is the day to start following Jesus. To trust in his sacrifice alone for their sin and commit their lives to following him. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us this Sunday. We look forward to seeing you next Sunday.